Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's Wednesday, December the 27th, 2023. We're having uh, today a, a kind of a, a day on economics and time. We already did a show this morning with the British based financial analyst. Charles Croson, uh, who uh, explained why time matters in economics. It certainly matters in economic history, especially when it comes to the United States. We did a show in October with the New York Times economist, economic uh, correspondent David Leonhardt. Uh, he has a new book out. Uh, Ours was the Shining Future, a history of American economics since the war which suggests that the American dream has been punctured by a, a mix of neoliberalism and anti-unionism and other kind of free market ideologies. And we're back on that theme today with Gerald Epstein. He's a professor at the University of Massachusetts at Amherst. And he has a new book out. It's actually out at the end of January. It's called Busting the Bankers Club, Finance for the Rest of Us. Gerald is joining us from Northampton, Massachusetts. Uh, Gerald, uh, congratulations on the upcoming book. I'm not sure if you're familiar with uh, Leonhard's book, Ours Was the Shining Future, The Story of the American Dream. We've done a number of shows uh, on similar themes. The idea that since the Second World War, uh, the American economy, and particularly since the 1970s, late 70s, early 80s, the American economy has been radically transformed, um, triggered by the Reagan years, uh, who transformed the New Deal economy? Is that the thesis of your new book? Uh, well, that's one of the thing. The Bankers Club uh, finance for the rest of us. Sure, that's one of the arguments uh, in the book. Uh, what the book is is about is well, why? How did our financial system uh, get to be so big, so powerful, um, even though it it uh, regularly needs uh, bails, bail, bailouts from the government and the taxpayer and and, and regularly causes uh, economic crises. Um, is this something that's been with us forever, or is this a, a relatively recent phenomenon, to pick up on your point? Uh, and I argue that um, we had a, a pretty good financial uh, structure after the New Deal with the regulations put in place then. Um, but then little by little, the uh, bankers and their allies have pushed to deregulate that, uh, spent a lot of money, gathered a lot of allies. That's the Bankers Club. And now we have a, a relatively deregulated financial system or one that's regulated in the interests of the mega banks. And that's one of the things that has uh, undermined the American dream. You talk about this bankers club, you're, econo you're an economist, you've got your PhD at, at Princeton, so you understand it, economics as well as anyone. Don't we need banks in any economic system, uh, Gerald? Or is there something problematic about the nature, the history of American banks? We absolutely need banks. My first chapter uh, talks about the Jekyll and Hyde of finance. That is, uh, you know the story about the, uh, the Dr. Jekyll and um, he had a, a twin half part of him, the, the murderous Hyde. And, uh, and um, that's kind of the way our financial system is. We need banks. We need a financial system. Uh, we get our loans for our houses, for, for school, for businesses, etc. 
but it makes a huge difference about whether we're seeing the Jekyll phase, that is the, the productive phase, or the Hyde phase of, of banking, the one that's so destructive. And what happened since the New Deal um, over the 1970s and 80s, and really took off after Reagan, as you mentioned it, uh, was the taking away of financial regulations and other financial structures that kept the negative aspects of finance in check and instead let the uh, let the negative and, and more destructive aspects um, uh, take foreground. And what I'm arguing for is um, a set of, of changes uh, that, that can bring out a, a much better financial system that serves the needs of everyone. Um, but I'm, the book is not just about what we need. It's about groups of what I call the, bank, the, uh, the uh, club busters. That is, there are lots of... Uh, people out there and organizations that have been pushing hard to reform the financial system. So this book isn't just about the power of the banks and, and their allies, that is the, the Bankers Club, but it's also about what uh, many people and organizations are doing across the country to change things. How much in, in your historical narrative, uh, Gerald, is history repeating itself? You talk about the club busters. Of course, it brings to mind the uh, the cartel busters of the early 20th century, even men like Teddy Roosevelt uh, and their hostility to a, a completely unregulated late 19th century American uh, capitalism. Mm -hmm. Is history repeating itself? Are the forces that created the New Deal, um, are they similar today in the 2020s? In other words, is the are the 2020s rather similar to the 1920s? Yeah, well, um, there, there are certainly similarities. You know, history doesn't totally repeat itself, but definitely uh, similarities. So for example, um, in the uh, 1920s, we had a real uh, conglomeration of, of, of banking power. In those days, you know, think of JP Morgan, um, banking was very much conglomerated with industry um, and, and uh, investment banks with commercial banks. We had these universal banks that were doing everything. Um, and uh, in income and wealth inequality was at an uh, enormously high, a lot of inequality and very low re regulation of these financial conglomerates. So um, that crashed in, in the 1920s. The New Deal tried to restructure it by breaking up the investment banks from the commercial banks. Class-Steagall Act, many people might have heard of that. Yeah, we, we often hear that term. The, the... Uh, but that's just one small piece of what was done during the New Deal. Um, but then uh, now what we've seen happen is uh, after the um, destruction of the Glass-Steagall Act in 1997-98 under the Clinton administration and uh, pushed by Alan Greenspan of the Federal Reserve, little by little, these universal banks recreated themselves, these mega banks. So there's been this consolidation of banking power, once again, like, uh, as you said, we had um, in, in the 1920s and 30s. And um, so just as there were trust busters then, now we have club busters, like the uh, Better Markets, Americans for Financial Reform, other groups around really trying to um, put some guardrails on these mega banks and revive community banks and smaller banks and publicly oriented banks. Another similarity would seem, maybe it's a superficial one, Gerald, is the stock market, the, 20, the 1920 boom 
and bust, of course, was created by the stock market. As we speak, the Dow Jones is at its highest level. Most people don't really understand it because many Americans feel poorer than they were. Uh, are there similarities also in, in terms of the way in which the markets are operating, perhaps to the benefit of, of, of what you call the Bankers Club in the 1920s and the 2020s, or has something changed when it comes to the market? Well, um, certainly a lot has changed. You know, the, the markets are more electronically driven now and um, are, are uh, even more global now than they were then. Um, but there are also, and also uh, a re the, the ownership of, of stocks is relatively concentrated among the, the, the uh, very rich. Then so and now, is there a difference between the concentration of stocks in the 20s in the 1920s and the 2020s? Yeah, in the 2020s, it's a bit less because pension funds, which in principle um, are owned by uh, uh, workers and others, um, the institutional uh, investors own quite a bit more of stocks now than they did in the 1920s. In the 1920s, um, apart from penny stocks and so forth that were tried, you know, they sell to, to poor people and middle-class people in those days were mostly frauds. Um, it is more widespread now, but it's certainly not, uh, uh, isn't equally spread by any means. So it's still very highly concentrated. Um, there are limits now, uh, at least in terms of publicly traded stocks, uh, on the amount of uh, leverage, the amount of borrowing that one can engage in in order to buy stocks. That was one of the mm. regulations that was put in during the New Deal that has, has remained. But there are so many other ways of investing, the shadow markets and so forth, where uh, that are not regulated at all, where these kinds of regulations don't have any bite. So to answer your question, um, the stock market is, again, somewhat detached from uh, the financial system, mostly owned by, by wealthy people. Um, it may not play, though, quite as big a role now as it did in the 1920s because there's so many other investments. I wonder, and another similarity, and this, of course, this probably isn't the focus of your book, but thinking out loud, the hysteria, the financial hysteria of the 20s was created in part by a hysteria over automotive stocks, which drove Wall Street. Today, Wall Street's being driven by big tech stocks, and big, big, big tech stocks seem to be particularly ebullient at the moment because of AI. So I wonder uh, if that ebullience, that irrational ebullience uh, is, is reappearing, and that will be the thing that creates at least perhaps in people like yours mind, a crisis that will result in a fundamental restructuring like in the 1930s? Well, so those are two separate questions. Is it going to create a crisis and is it going to result in a fundamental restructuring? Um, you know, we had this crisis in 2007, 2008 as a result of another kind of boom and bubble, the housing boom and bubble. Um, and um, what created that was the fact that a whole other, a lot of uh, debt, derivatives uh, 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 were created around that bubble. The banking banking uh, industry, especially the mega banks, got very involved with all the asset-backed securities and so forth. So they got involved in that bubble. Um, and so when that bubble burst, as it would inevitably, it not only brought down housing prices, but it, it also brought down the whole financial infrastructure that formed around it and got integrated and in interconnected with it. 
Um, and that's what it really takes for a bubble to create a financial crisis. There has to draw in integrated, interconnected markets and a lot of debt um, into it. And often it has to connect with the banking system, which is so central to our economy. So, yes, if uh, um, if we see a, an AI bubble um, and um, a crypto bubble and so forth, they somehow get connected much more to other financial institutions, debt and the banking system. Um, if those burst, then they could uh, bring about problems in the economy. And we saw what happened with Silicon Valley Bank and the others. Uh, in last spring, um, that's because those banks really got connected with the crypto bubble uh, and um, brought them down. Now, luckily, the, we have enough regulations around crypto uh, being being um, with a kind of Gensler and a few others with their thumbs in the dike, uh, which prevented crypto from infecting much of the banking system. So when that happened, the whole banking system didn't collapse like it almost did in the 2007 and 2008. But if uh, now we allow crypto or uh, some of the more dangerous AI kinds of bubbles to get so integrated into the banking system and other financial um, markets, yes, that could, that could create some dangers. Where, whether or not it will lead to reform depends on the clubbusters. It depends on the po political power mobilization activity of those who are trying to bring about financial reform. But the Bankers Club on the other side has enormous power to block genuine reform, just as it did in 2007, 2008. We're going to get to 2007, 2008, I promise you, because that's the, the core, that's the center of your book. But before we get there, my perhaps rather vulgar understanding of what happened between the 1930s and the 1980s is because of the Wall Street crisis, because of the collapse, massive unemployment, political instability, fascism in Europe, Second World War, blah, blah, blah. The bankers, what you call the bankers club was busted, uh, was broken up. And for 40 years, the power lay with the trust busters. Um, and then over those 40 years, between the 1930s and the 1970s, um, the banker, the bankers club reorganized, reassembled its power. I, is that too simplistic or is that basically what happened between the 30s and the 70s? Yeah, that's basically, you've got it. I mean, that's basically what happened. Um, there's, there's one, uh, aspect of which I do think is important, however, that the reason why, um, there were two reasons why the Roosevelt administration was able to break up uh, the Bankers Club, the uh, 1.0, as I call it. Um, and that's because, A, they were flat on their backs um, from the uh, uh, crisis itself. Many banks went out of business and the government did not bail them out. So they let them rot for the most part. But number two, other American business, uh, you talked about the auto industry, the steel industry, other um, titans of American business decided we don't need these financial institutions. They screwed us up last time. So let's go along with the new deal, at least if it comes to, when it comes to financial components, not labor components. They didn't like that. Um, so there was uh, the bankers didn't have a club after that for a while. They didn't have allies among the big corporations. They were kind of uh, on their own. 
And so I think one of the important things that's happened recently and since Reagan and maybe a little bit later is a lot of the um, non-financial corporations for various reasons um, have kind of joined back in with the Bankers Club and really uh, don't fight against them for the most part. We're speaking with um, Gerald Epstein, a distinguished professor of economics at UMass Amherst and the author of an upcoming book, Busting the Bankers Club. So, Gerald, um, what happened in, in terms of the history of neoliberalism, if that's the right word, mm -hmm. um, Friedman economics, we've done a number of shows on that. In your reading of history, was it all conscious? Did the bankers know what they were doing or was it rather haphazard and accidental, this discovery or rediscovery of free market ac economics, Friedman, Hayek? Uh, and their opposition to the, the Keynesianism of, of the New Deal? What an excellent question. Um, so, you know, I, I think in terms of the, the bankers themselves and the, and the financial firms um, like uh, Walter Riston um, and, and the others who were really trying to build these uh, mega banks, uh, they, I think they were willing to take any ideology that suited them, that worked at the time. I mean, you remember in 1970 that Nixon said we're all Keynesians now. Um, so it's not so much that most of them, you know, th there were some ideological ones, but most of them were very pragmatic and they were trying to get particular um, uh, policies and regulations passed that would, that would help them uh, create these uh, universal banks. Now, um, it is true that when uh, economic theory, and this is one of the parts of my book, I talk about certain groups of economists as being members of the Bankers Club, um, Friedman being predominant, but there were others like Fama and others who developed the idea of efficient markets, the idea that financial markets are more efficient, they operate best without any regulation. So this was an idea that was published in journals. These, some of these people got Nobel Prizes in economics and gave them legitimacy. So, you know, the bankers said, okay, let's, let's go with that one. And uh, when they were, they hired their lawyers, that, which is another group of the bankers club to go argue uh, in front of the regulators and others, they would pick up on these economists' no, notions of, of uh, efficient markets, which were all part of the neoliberal idea uh, and use them to try to argue that um, the government should not regulate. So um, these things came together and my sense of it is that uh, the bankers were keeping their eye on the ball, deregulation, let them uh, agglomerate, and they found arguments along the way, mo many of them coming from uh, neoliberal or, or libertarian economists, lawyers, and others. Jared, you're an economist rather than a political theorist, but I wonder what you think about the thesis of people like Leonhard, and there are others actually in his camp who argue that it's too easy to blame, shall we say, the Blankers Club or Friedman or the free market people or neoliberals, whatever you want to call them. And the progressives also have some responsibility for what happened, particularly in the fragmentation of the old and the new left, uh, perhaps the, the New Deal left and the, the new left of the 1960s with its preoccupation with identity politics, sexual politics. 
in your reading, and as I said, you're an economist rather than the political thinker, a political theorist, but I'm sure you've given some thought to this both in and out of your book. Did progressives lose the plot in the 1960s? Well, again, a really interesting question. Um, let me let me try to answer that from the perspective of uh, the study I did in, in the interviews that I did for my book with what I called club busters, you know, people who are fighting for uh, better financial regulation, for uh, more public financial institutions and so forth, or fighting ag against this deregulation. And I think it's safe to say that um, uh, there weren't that many people paying attention. There weren't that many pe progressives, people on the left and so forth. Uh, even for a while, there weren't that many, even in the unions, that were paying that much attention to these issues, these financial issues, these uh, monetary policy issues, this use about the Federal Reserve and so forth. Uh, there was much more concern with other things. And and I'm not saying the other things were less important, you know, other things like uh, the anti-Vietnam anti War movement, uh, racial justice and so forth. But um, it was it's, was really difficult to, to get a lot of attention paid to, to these kinds of issues until the great financial crisis uh, or maybe Occupy Wall Street was probably the first place. Yeah, it's fascinating. We did a show with uh, Chris Leonard, um, the author of Lords of Easy Money. I'm sure you're familiar with his work. Yes. Um, who, who, who takes a similar position. Um, we are, it's a very interesting and very important conversation, not too esoteric, I hope. Uh, for most of our viewers and listeners, we're speaking with Gerald Epstein, a distinguished professor of economics at UMass Amherst and the author of an upcoming and important new book, Busting the Bankers Club. Um, I want to uh, thank our sponsor, uh, Liberties, a quarterly journal of culture and politics, for bringing us such high quality content. Going to run a short feature on Liberties and then we'll be back with Gerald Epstein to talk specifically about what happened in 2008, 2009 that triggered the crisis and, and what we're going to do about it, how we're going to bust the bankers club. So don't go away, anyone. News, the noise, there is nuance, insight. Liberties, it's not just a journal of ideas. It's a meteor of intelligent substance. It's the place to be for engaged citizens. Politics, opinion, substance. Liberties is a triumph for freedom of thought, a quarterly of urgency, of cultural exploration, of intellectual delight, of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller. And you can subscribe to Liberties at libertiesjournal.com. Um, we are speaking with Gerald Epstein, the author of an important new book, uh, Busting uh, Gerald, uh, busting the uh, busting the uh, the bankers club is that uh, busting the bankers club? It sounds a little bit like a novel. Um, uh, as I said earlier, Gerald, we did a show with uh, Chris Leonard. Uh, we've actually done a number of shows with him. I find him a very engaging and, and important uh, economics journalist on the role of quantitative easing. Um, his book, uh, The Lords of Easy Money, I think fits quite comfortably with your thesis. What happened in 2008-9 to bring the current financial crisis, or at least in your mind, the, the financial crisis of, of the Bankers Club uh, to the boil? Right, well, um, 
I think uh, uh, the main thing was this whole push uh, in the 1980s and 90s by the big banks, Citibank, Bank of America, um, and others, to once again uh, create these mega banks that were kind of a one-stop shopping mall for all kinds of financial products um, all over the world, uh, and uh, with relatively little uh, regulation. They were too, they're too big to regulate, really. And um, and what they did was engage in the creation of financial products, uh, really financial alchemy, that turned um, mortgages, house mortgages, into uh, securities uh, that they could sell on the open market all, all over the world. Uh, and these securities had um, uh, were very leveraged. There was a lot of uh, debt involved in creating these securities. Uh, they were financed with very short-term money from all over, uh, from the European markets and so forth. And it wasn't just US banks, European banks were very involved in this as well. Um, they got the credit rating agencies to, to rate these securities triple A, um, even though there, there was a lot of junk in them. And it was all built around a housing bubble that was bound to, to burst. So when it crashed, it not only really harmed lots of American homeowners and especially um, poorer poorer homeowners who poorer are and and middle and, and working class homeowners that lost their savings and therefore dragged them down, which dragged the economy down. But it threatened to uh, uh, to destroy the the these mega banks and others as well. So the Federal Reserve and the Treasury decided that they were going to bail out these banks basically with no strings attached. As I tell my students, well, maybe they had to bail out the banks, but they didn't have to bail out the bankers. You know, when the Obama administration gave uh, bailed out General Motors, because it was having trouble around the same time, uh, they made General Motors replace the um, the top management. They didn't do anything like that with the banks. Was this, uh, was this done by both the Bush and the Obama administration? So, or or primarily yeah, yeah. the Bush administration? Well, no, it started under the Bush administration. That's absolutely right. Um, and then Obama... Uh, so the, the politics of this aren't as um, clean cut as some people might like. And the, the thesis was that the banks were too big to fail. Is there any truth to that, Joe? Yeah. I, um, but I said, but uh, the, the way they implemented it was that the, the bankers were too big to fail. They didn't have to... They didn't have to uh, pay back the. They didn't have to bail out the top bankers. They didn't claw back any of their earnings. They didn't claw back um, any of the earnings of the traders who had who had known that they were engaging in probably fraudulent trades. They didn't take any of that back. They all got off uh, scot free except for maybe um, you know one. And nobody went to jail, did they? Only one low level trader went to jail. Unlike under the um, when the savings and loan crisis happened. In 1986, a bunch of them uh, went to jail. So it's like, okay, you did this once, no problem, you can do it again. And since that time, uh, when when there have been these big financial problems, look at what happened under COVID in March 2020, the, they announced a pandemic. Once again, the global financial market started to, to, to get in trouble. And again, the Treasury and the Federal Reserve um, bailed out a lot of these financial markets. Now, th thankfully for our economy, they also put a lot of other money in the economy. The Congress insisted on that. Um, 
uh, a lot of money go to municipalities and others. But um, again, no consequences. So that's the problem. No consequences, allowing these banks to become bigger and bigger, uh, the financial markets to grow and grow with, with fewer regulations on many of them. Um, and there's no sense of, of consequences that can bring them. Uh, so, so let's get to the, the core positive thesis. You, you, you believe that there is, uh, that there are a community or a network of club busters, of bankers club busters. Um, are they similar to the uh, the trust busters of the late 19th century or the banking busters of the 1930s? Are they unions? Are they political parties? Are they citizen groups? How would you identify them? Good question. Well, um, so there are a number of components to it which share some, some things with the 1930s but are quite different. So uh, the unions got involved. The FLCIO got very involved uh, in 2007, 2008. It had been somewhat involved before that. And they, along with um, with other groups, there were, for example, uh, uh, a bunch of lawyers who had been involved in trying to prevent um, predatory lending in the 1960s. If they had succeeded, this probably wouldn't have happened. Um, they got involved. A new organization was created that brought a lot of these groups together, the Americans for Financial Reform, um, led by Heather Booth and Lisa, and Lisa Donner. Um, and uh, this includes experts like economists, lawyers, uh, uh, people who union people who know a lot about finance and so forth, and some politicians. Elizabeth Warren. Yeah, Warren comes to mind. I mean, she's the she seems to be the um, the center of, of this thinking, isn't isn't she? Well, she was very involved at the beginning. She was the head of uh, the oversight group for TARP. Uh, the the the. Uh, where the, the Treasury gave all this money to the banks and then she became a senator. She's the uh, the, the uh, intelligence behind the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, which is one of the things that came out of the Dodd-Frank regulations of 2010. But there are others, Sherrod Brown, Jeff Merkley. Um, there are others uh, in government who have been involved. So it's similar to the New Deal uh, in, in, in that there are a lot of uh, groups in government, outside of government, who are pushing for this. Uh, but it's it's different in that when the New Deal hit, the Roosevelt administration pushed very hard for kind of fundamental uh, restructuring. But despite the efforts of these club busters um, in 2007, 2008, 2009, 2010, the Obama administration, led by um, Timothy Geithner and Ben Bernanke at the Fed, didn't really want to have a fundamental restructuring. They just wanted to uh, make sure the banks uh, got back on their feet and they thought everything would trickle down from there. And that was a fundamental mistake. I can't remember who said it, but uh, somebody in one of these administrations talked about not wasting a good crisis. Uh was the crisis of 2008 and 2007, 8, and even the crisis of COVID, were they wasted by the bank busters? It seems as if the the main, the, the center of the Democratic Party has al always been slightly ambivalent at best to the idea of busting the banks and even to the thesis in your book of there even being a bankers club. Yes, the Democratic, the Democratic Party um, uh, has you're absolutely right, has been very ambivalent. Uh, the financial sector has given a lot of money over the years to the Democratic Party. 
and um, you have a number uh, in the Democratic Party who, who are, don't want to see financial crises happen <laughs> all the time and certainly not under their watch, but they also don't want fundamental restructuring. Um, so yeah, it, it, it was a wasted crisis, partly because uh, the Democratic uh, Party uh, was dominated by people who didn't really want a, a fundamental restructuring. If it had been dominated by others, as it was during the Great Depression, we would have seen more fundamental changes. But I wouldn't say it's necessarily a, a, a failure of the busters. The busters, you know, really worked very hard, had their champions. Um, I think they did a very good job of doing all they could under the circumstances. But uh, given the, the uh, opposition of uh, the center of the Democratic Party, including Dodd and Frank, um, the two, uh, the senator and the congressman, who led this uh, Dodd-Frank regulation, uh, they didn't want that kind of restructuring. So it was a real uh, missed opportunity. I'm guessing, Gerald, um, it's probably no secret that you're a man of the left, you're a progressive, but in the 30s, the challenges to the capitalist system weren't just from the left, they were from the right, both from communists or socialists and from fascists. Uh, and to some extent, isn't the same true today that in some ways, Perhaps the, the cultural challenge to the idea of a banker's club is coming from the radical right, from the, the Trumpist wing of the Republican Party. One might argue that it's a great fiction, but um, that it's an invention. But uh, how would you interpret some of the populist hostility to capitalism within the Republican Party? And do you have any faith that the banker's club could be busted from the right as much as from the left? <laughs> Again, a really good question. So, yes, the the the, the, Trumpist, the Trumpian coalition is filled with um, lots of populists, people who don't like banks, don't like elites, don't like finance. And um, especially the, the cultural identity, and at least in their mind, of many bankers. Yeah. Even uh, furthermore, yes, definitely. But um, but you have to remember when Trump ran for president the first time, he ran on a very anti-finance uh, plat platform. His, his his speeches, you know, were about how terrible the banks were, how um, Hillary Clinton took all this money from the banks, etc. But then, as soon as he got into power, he named a bunch of Goldman Sachs people to his administration, and in one of his early speeches said, well, I, you know, these are good, these are good bankers. We like these bankers. And he proceeded to say, we're going to do a number on Dodd-Frank and proceeded to put people in place in the regulatory uh, uh, realm that started dismantling Dodd-Frank. So what are you going to believe then moving forward? I'm not sure. But on the, uh, on the one hand, you have Trump who, who really quickly joined the Bankers Club, no question, uh, even more so than, than Obama probably. Uh, riding herd on this this mass populist slash fascist organized uh, multitudes, um, and uh, they pretty much seem to be willing to do whatever Trump says. I mean, that's my reading of it. So I I think that um, if Trump were to be reelected, apart from many other things which are probably more important, actually, uh, he probably will continue to uh, move back to deregulating finance and uh, be a, a a very loyal member of of the Bankers Club as long as they're loyal to him. Gerald, the uh, the subtitle of the book is Finance for the Rest of Us. 
Um, that may be hard to achieve, certainly politically, as we know from the center of the Re Democratic Party and the dishonesty, perhaps, of the Republican Party. But if you can get there, what does this look like, finance, for the rest of us? Is right. it you, you, you hinted earlier at a, a decentralized uh, or a re-decentralized American economy. What are the key identifying features of a reformed financial system? Right. So um, a good question. Uh, what I think it is involves is breaking up the mega banks, that is, implementing a new type of Glass-Steagall Act so that uh, the the banks um, are not so powerful to too big to fail. They're not too big to manage. They're not too big to regulate. Um, Arthur Wilmarth Jr., who's a, a very renowned lawyer at the University of Pennsylvania, in his book Mega Banks, has uh, has proposed this along with other people, and I subscribe to that idea. Um, number one. Number two, uh, we need uh, stricter regulation, including of all financial uh, markets and institutions. Uh, the, the financial markets are really, the shadow markets are really getting outside the purview of, of regulations. That's number two. But number three, and I think this is what's more novel about my approach, is really promoting public financial institutions, publicly oriented financial institutions. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean state-owned or government-owned financial institutions, but it means uh, uh, we need a, 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 a ecology of financial institutions for whom profit maximization is not the main goal. So for example, you could have a, a state or public owned financial institutions in California. You have um, a, an initiative for California public banking. It's probably the most um, successful one in the country now. And they're moving to build uh, municipal public banks and so forth. And these are banks that are going to finance um, small business, uh, communities that have been marginalized and left out of the banking system, and so forth. Um, what we need to do is we have a lot of non-profit-oriented financial institutions, cre uh, um, credit unions, uh, community development financial institutions, CDFIs, they're called, but they're not big enough. They're not enough of them. They're not scaled up. One of the things they're missing is an infrastructure of support from the Federal Reserve and other government institutions that give them the same kind of support they give to the mega banks. The, the Federal Reserve and the Treasury has spent trillions of dollars over the last 30 years underwriting the mega banks. Um, if they could spend uh, just a fraction of that underwriting more publicly oriented financial institutions, we could begin to build some uh, enough of them that um, support small businesses, poor communities, help with the transition to uh, uh, a green economy, another important thing. So that's what I'm, I think we really need is a, uh, an ecology of uh, publicly oriented financial institutions supported by the Federal Reserve and the Treasury Department. Not not subsidized to the same degree they subsidize the big banks, especially when they get in trouble, but give them more of an infrastructure, liquidity facilities, et cetera. Do you think, speaking of missing, not taking advantage of a crisis, the Biden administration missed this crisis, that some of what you're talking about, which makes complete sense to me, although I'm not sure I'm necessarily mainstream on this stuff, but Biden's attempt to reform the economy still was operating on centralized New Deal principles and that 
um, he missed or the Democratic Party missed uh, an opportunity, a crisis to make these profound structural reforms, which actually will formally change the nature of the economy. Yeah, well, I'm certain, you know, Biden certainly has made a lot of mistakes, um, but he, he's also done some good things. For example, the Inflation Reduction Act, which um, was very important for trying to move forward and dealing with climate change. In the Inflation Reduction Act, he uh, they did create a, a Green Development Bank, which is one of the, which is an example of a publicly oriented financial institution. Uh, and yes, I think um, there is more that he could have done uh, to help to promote um, uh, community banks and uh, publicly oriented financial institutions and so forth, uh, which he didn't do. Um, uh, there's only so much he can do, I guess. Yeah, I mean, the two things that come to mind, um... Gerald on this is firstly, for better or worse, maybe we need a crisis, and I'm not saying we should celebrate this, a crisis of late 20s dimensions to enable this. But secondly, we need a political wrapper. We need um, uh, somebody or a group within the Democratic Party able to to brand this, to tell the story. At the moment, it's still too technical. Yes, um, and I think Elizabeth Warren is among... But Elizabeth that. Warren, I mean, she I don't mean to sound too ageist here. She's an old woman. We need younger people being able to somehow harness the vitality of youth and innovation to this. Yeah, well, we, yes, I agree with you completely. Um, and uh, there is an, uh, an up-and-coming, I think, group of younger activists and they're in the ranks of these club busters uh, and um, who are more and more talking about this. Who uh, in particular, who should we be listening to? Who, who strikes you as being particularly um, on, excusing the pun here, on the money on this one? <laughs> yeah, well, um, I took a lot of guidance from uh, Dennis Kelleher at Better Markets, who, who uh, has um, really promoted a lot on, on these issues, Lisa Donner at the Americans for Financial Reform. Um, and uh, there are uh, others whose names don't come to me at the moment. But the point is, um, if you look at some of these activists can, in California, for example, who've been pushing for the public banking uh, activity uh, there, uh, there's some people there who are quite charismatic. And um, so I don't know where are you located. Are you in, I'm in San Francisco? So, you know, Gavin, you Gavin Newsom territory has been on the show a couple of times. I, yeah. I, I, yeah. I, I'm guessing that this might be a little radical for Gavin. And, and finally, um, Gerald, the big thing out here, of course, is AI. Can technology compound this, help it? Or will technological forces only strengthen your bankers club? I mean, the American economy or the global economy increasingly seems controlled by seven or eight big tech companies. So I'm assuming these big tech companies are even more powerful than the banks. And there is a, a natural axis between big tech and the banking club. That's right. Um, you know, moving forward, there is this natural axis and they're joining forces and they're joining forces big time around AI. Um, it's just at the start, but it's moving fast. Look, I don't, I don't see any way that you can completely block AI. Uh, just as there was no way you could um, 
block um, totally derivatives and other things. The, the, key, the key thing is to develop um, the political will to develop regulations around these things so that they don't make the problem worse. Um, and, uh, you know, in theory, they, they properly regulated. Um, they might make some, for some efficiencies also. Um, you can't totally suppress some of these things, but you've got to get on top of regulating them. And that's what we found out with these things like credit default swaps and so forth in 2007-2008. And finally, Gerald, um, can AI be used if, it, if it's in the hands of regulators or in the state or local activists? Can, be, can AI be used to bust the bankers club to create finance for the rest of us? Yes. Um, in fact, uh, I, I think kind of imagining uh, something that AI could do is I'd like to see AI used to to weed out um, all, all the kind of crypto frauds out there. Not all crypto fraud necessarily, but all the crypto frauds and uh, transform all of the uh, tokens that they have from from crypto tokens to uh, fiat money to dollars, but only at one cents per dollar. That's what I'd like to see AI do.